0: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker
1: so the first step in in any solving of anything is admit that there's a problem
2: we are hooked in new england and this is the tom roland podcast
3: Hey everybody, welcome to the show today. We're gonna move to a new area. We're going to Maine. We're going to Maine today and we're gonna talk to the guys from Hooked on New England, podcast up there where they really focus on the striped bass, not only just the bass and how to fish for them, but also conservation and how to protect the striped bass and the resource. So here it comes, Hooked on New England. All right, guys, how you doing?
1: We're doing good. How are you doing?
3: Well, just like we were saying before we hit record, uncharted territory. Um, it's a it's a funny time in the world right now, but all things considered, uh, doing doing pretty well.
1: Yeah, how's the weather down there? Pretty good.
3: Yeah, yeah, the weather's good. The fishing's great. Um, just nobody around. It's like a like a ghost town, and um, it's funny funny time. But um, did one with uh, a podcast with, with Robert Trossett yesterday and he was saying that just felt like it was giving the, the earth a time to breathe. You know, it's like, this is, this is usually one of our busiest times. I don't know about your fishing up there, but it's usually one of the times of the year where we get the most angling pressure and there's virtually none. So it'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out in the next year or two with, um, uh, You know, maybe, maybe it's really good. Maybe it's incredibly good. Who knows? I don't know. I'm, I'm looking for the silver lining.
1: I know I was supposed to be down there in uh, big pine key, actually with two friends of ours and our, when the keys were shut down, so was our Airbnb and our trip for the whole week. Yeah. So, so do you you guys spend
3: a lot of time in the keys or what?
2: Um, not really. As much as possible, as much as possible, as much as this is, um, Mike talking, my in-laws have a place in Southwest Florida. So I have a cheap place to, um, stay anytime I want and, uh, or free place rather, they don't even charge me, which I, I think considering they're my in-laws, that's, that's really good. Um, but I, so I've spent a lot of time in the Southwest, but I also, I had, um, I had three days booked, uh, May 1st through 3rd in the Keys for Tarpon. Um, which is obviously not going to happen now. So yeah. Uh, it's a bummer.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But you know, we're all in it, we're all in it together and everybody's having to kind of rethink their trips for the, for the year, maybe spend a little more time closer to home. Um, but like you're hooked in new England. So where does that, where's, where's home base for you?
1: Uh, we're in Southern Maine,
3: Southern Maine. Okay.
1: So all the way up
3: and yeah, I've been up there a couple of times. It's beautiful up there. I haven't fished much up there, but man, I went up there for a wedding and I just fell in love with Maine and I've always wanted to walk the Appalachian trail and end in Maine. Um, But that's a, that's a life goal. Maybe I'll get there one day. Um, But Maine, Maine is spectacular. What, like, what do you, what's your main fishing up there? Are you, I mean, I know there's some incredible smallmouth bass fishing. You've got some great um, freshwater fishing, but there's probably also some incredibly good saltwater fishing. What, what do you guys concentrate on most?
2: Our, our, uh, both Lou and I concentrate, um, almost exclusively on striped bass. And the reason for that is because it's really the only, um, you know smaller game saltwater fish that is reliable um we used to get a good bluefish migration every year and that's pretty much gone with the um with the eradication more or less of the menhaden um pogies whatever you however you refer to them so unfortunately Excuse me. Um, it's really all bass, all the t- all striped bass, all the time. Okay. Well, a- hold, hold on a second, because I,
3: I, I'm sorry, I'm not that familiar with your fishery up there. But why have the Menhaden been eradicated?
2: Um, the reduction plants that make um, produce fish oil and um, byproduct, which they ship to. Um, Southeast Asia and also to dog and cat food manufacturers in America um, have had a pretty significant impact on them Um, there used to be five or six of these reduction plants they've all gone away except for one but it's a very efficient form of harvest for these what we refer to them as pogies you've heard of them referred to as bunker um, but they're they're super oily fish and they're the basis they're the food basis bottom of the food chain for just about everything that flies or swims on the east coast um you know from from north carolina up um and this reduction these is a production plant in um uh i believe it's in maryland yeah um and it or no virginia i'm sorry virginia and, you know, they just use, they use spotter planes and then um, factory boats and they, they're just very efficient at what they do. So
3: that reduction uh, plant, what you're calling a reduction plant, is that an actual floating boat that is catching and processing all at once or are they bring in the catch in?
2: There, I believe there's a little of both, but I know the plant itself is huge and it's, and that is land-based. Yeah yeah we um, we see so a
3: similar operation in louisiana um and those boats are are everywhere they're not the big uh i haven't seen my personally i haven't seen the big um floating boats that both catch and and um you know uh process everything what we see up there are like these boats they look like something out of mad max and they you know they're just just pulling in so much Ben Hayden, and then doing something with it on the deck. And then there's this, there's this, you know, uh, outflow, which is just like pink bloody water that's going back out. So I don't, they're processing it somehow, I guess,
2: or maybe just smushing it. They're using, they, you know, they call it a reduction plant because they pull the, oil out and then they reduce the fish to like a a meal. Basically they grind it. Yeah. And that's the stuff they send both to, um, dog food manufacturers, pet manufacturers, pet food manufacturers, but also, um, over to Southeast Asia, where this stuff is fed, um, to chickens that are in pens above, um, ponds and the chickens eat that meal. Um, and then process it. And then they um, provide food naturally uh, to the you know, oh. shrimp and other things that are raised in these ponds and then packaged up and shipped over to America. So um, it's, a, it's an unhealthy cycle all the way around. Um, and one that we would like to see stop as soon as possible. There's so, an amazing book um, called The Most Important Fish in the Sea about about the menhaden um and it's any any um self-respecting angler should read that um book if 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 you want to find out you know what has gone on with those fish they there used to be at a point in the past according to the author of this book um uh, his name is H Bruce Franklin if anyone's interested and again the book's called the most important fish in the sea but there used to be what was referred to as basically a river of Menhaden, um, that, that just existed on the coast that, you know, as thick as you could imagine them on the whole East coast. Um, and I, I don't know, Tom, where you grew up. Uh, but when we grew up, we, we learned about the Native Americans teaching the, um, teaching the pilgrims to always plant a fish with the corn. Yeah. Um, It sounds crazy, but what they were, you know, obviously what they're doing was fertilizing the, the, the ground. And, um, that was menhaden that they used to use because they're so rich. Um, And now there just aren't any left or there are very few.
3: So these boats that are, that are catching so much, are they American boats or are they foreign boats?
1: Um I believe they're American and there were some um, there's a bunch of Canadian boats that come
2: down too that work for Omega. Yeah, Omega Protein is the name of the company and they are a Canadian owned company. But they're uh, you know all the employees and you know mind you we're not angry at employees everybody has to work I get it. Mm-hmm. Um but they're you know they're employees of this of this, uh, plant. So yeah, it's, it's all American boats and they're all, they're all, um, or they're mid Canadian, I, as Lou said. But, um, you know, all of this is sort of managed by, um, ASMFC, who kind of gives them their, their limits and so forth, or gives them kind of guide, um, for numbers that they should be taking. And last year there was a big hue and cry because they didn't really like the limits that, Um, ASMFC set for them. And so they just not only fished right through the limits, but then publicly said, we don't like these limits and we don't think that they're um, based on good science. And so we just overfished our quotas. And, and, you know, if you don't like it too bad. Um, So, So what
3: organization or agency would, would check them on that? Like, who who's well, is that fish and wildlife or is that who is that
2: that seems to be the million dollar question yeah. tom i mean it's it's uh it's one of those things that you know the af the asmfc sort of guides them and tells them but then when they overfish it for instance you know and i don't want to talk over my knowledge uh, beyond my knowledge but i do know that there were there was You know, there was some governmental involvement after that happened saying, you you guys can't do this anymore. Um, But and so I think that they're going to come down, you know, there's going to be some more focus on the moving forward. And we hope that's true. Um, You know, from my perspective, you, you know, it's one of those things where we know that fish oil, like most things in life, it's better to get it naturally than to take it from a bottle and there's some there's a there's no small amount of medical research that says if you're going to take fish oil do it by eating fish not by taking it from a pill because it's nowhere near as effective for your body so there's that there's that to think about but then there's also what are the impacts happening um the the menhaden filter um just gallons and gallons, a single fish will, will filter. Um, I can't remember the number of gallons, but it's, you know, dozens of gallons a day, let's say. And so we've wiped out this fish that was, was filtering, constantly filtering the Chesapeake Bay. So, um, now we've got, you know, the problems in the Bay, the Bay is, the Bay is having problems with, um, you know, the oyster, um, situation. And it's just sort of a snowball effect. And I. it seems like nobody has stood up and pounded the table and said, this is all interconnected and why aren't we fixing it? So um, there's a great organization out there. Um, I believe it's called Menhaden Defenders. Um, and they're really active and they've done a great job. and And so we're, you know, obviously, one of the big things about Hooked in New England is that our tagline is um chasing catching, and conserving New England saltwater game fish, and we're really big about the conservation end um and I know you are in the same boat um you know in what you do, so certainly that's that's just one of the things we're passionate about is bringing back the the bunker because um in the past couple of years we've seen uh, three or four years Lou we've yeah. seen um a nice number of pogies coming back and It's like, uh, it's like watching, um, an incredible renewal. We go out now on our charters to get where we're going. There are all of a sudden in the past four years, there are whales around, there are seabirds we haven't seen for years. Um, everything just is exponentially growing because these fish are back, these forage fish are back.
3: Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the key to the whole thing. That's the foundation. And I don't know if you guys remember, but it, you know, in Florida, we had a similar type situation. It wasn't with these big boats, but it was with a whole bunch of little boats. And it was the mullet, the mullet situation and the mullet netters um, basically got out of control and um, they were netting and the mullet were, the mullet in Florida is like the, the Midhayden in your area. It's the foundational yeah. fish, It everything eats it it's if if that goes away it's bad news for everybody and you know um florida sportsman magazine was really big uh big time in getting people to rally and understand what was going on and they banned the mullet nets and it wasn't you know it didn't take long for the mullet to return for the redfish to uh return it it really did not take long and it was miraculous what mother nature can do when you give the opportunity to just like reset and, and take the pressure off. So I feel like that it's very possible that you can bring the bunker back. If you can somehow alleviate the pressure, I don't know. That's the, that's the big challenge, but I don't know.
2: It is. And I'll tell you, we look to Florida. Um, both Lou and I are, are members of Captains for Clean Water and, and Bonefish Tarpon Trust, um, and we spend a lot of time looking at the things that Florida does because we also, you know, we have we have a, um, a problem with the striped bass. They're under uh, pressure. Um, the stocks are are um, overfishing is occurring, and they're overfished. If you understand how things like that are put into those terms. Um, so we, I looked, you know, I take, for instance, when you guys have a big winter kill, like you did a few years ago and the snook were wiped out, you said, okay, just sorry, you cannot keep a snook until they're back. And what you say is absolutely true. Nature rebounds. If you, if you let her do her job, she rebounds amazingly well. And that's, that's kind of what we, we would like to see with both the the menhaden and the bass is just, let's leave them alone. It's going to be painful for some of us for a while, but when they come back, it'll be fast and and furious.
3: Yeah. One of the things that I think captains for clean water has had such, um, they've seen such success with is that, you know, they, they come to the, to the problem with a solution. And absolutely. And they're, they're searching instead of just pointing fingers and instead of, you know, just complaining, they're actually coming with a solution. Like it might be as simple as vote for this person uh, because they, you know, this is on the agenda. They want to reduce limits or it could be, um, you know, the captains has always had a plan. Uh, or there is a been a they're just there it's not their plan. They're pointing out a plan that politicians have put in place for a long time. People are just not aware of it. So bringing right. awareness to that issue is 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 huge for them. but that's one of the reasons why I became such an advocate for them is because it wasn't just some guys complaining, which you know, in itself can can do good for bringing awareness to to a certain issue like that, that, you know, fishermen, for example, are a lot of times they're the, they're the canary in the coal mine. They're the bellwether of, of seeing things happening first. Like you guys running charters every single day are going to notice a decline in the bait before, you know, just somebody off the street would have any idea. They don't even know that there's bait out there. Like. But you're seeing a decline in it. You're seeing that the birds are not there like you like you normally would, and so now it's time to investigate, right? Um, but that's one of the things that they uh, kind of got my support right away is is having a solution. So, is there some sort of solution that you guys are working on, or are you still searching for that, or or what is where where are you in that fight right now?
2: Um, I think where the fight is at is that um, you know, there's no question that there's a problem. nobody n- nobody who's um, who's honest about you know looking at the situation questions whether there's a problem with with men Hayden um, and we know the culprit. um so the question is, you know, how do we? How do we get people to realize we need this? the The big way that the fight has in has been approached has been sort of like you know we got to just shut them down. We got to shut them down. It's true they don't offer that many jobs, and the jobs that they do offer aren't particularly high paying because they're you know mostly mostly laborious in nature, as you can imagine in a in a place where you're just grinding up fish. Um, but I think I mean I know Lou and I are. You know, when we talk about bat uh, striped bass, saving the striped bass, we're not all or nothing um, people. We don't see these these things in terms of black and white. It, I would love to see a solution where everybody walks away with something and, and the fish are completely able to respond. I think in I think I mean, I think you would agree that. I'm talking to Lou. I think that y- you would agree that there's a way that we can take some Menhaden out for these other purposes, but also, oh, well, for sure. Um, I think they just got too good at their job right now
1: with technology and everything. But I think a lot of it is we've. There, are, people have said that and agree that there is a problem. So the first step in in any solving of anything is admit that there's a problem, and last year, the, the steps that the ASMFC took, you know, to kind of come down on these big commercial operations and talk to the individual states that they operate in, in the Midcoast and get those states to listen to the fact, to the point where they did go to Omega and these other big corporations and say, look, enough's enough. You need to follow the guidelines that the board sets for you. Otherwise you won't be operating here anymore. Hmm. And then to go with the striped bass, you know, that it it was deemed that they were overfished and I think this is the first time that I can remember each state from Maine all the way down to Delaware having some sort of consistent regulation because these fish are going from Delaware all the way up up to us. They're not just staying in one area. So, they're all managed by one board. It didn't make any sense for each state to have different regulations because we weren't ever going to get any real science or anywhere to get these fish to where they needed to be. So this is the first year that they've all gone in for the most part. I think every state's fallen in line, right? Mike, yeah. They, had they the have the same regulation other than the Chesapeake because they consider that a different stock. They can keep a smaller fish,
2: but every state is now, 28 to 35 inches we're talking about striped bass in this in that particular argument but yeah to your point tom i mean one of the big problems in managing these and i know you i know florida seems the same sees the same issue um is that when you take a management board like atlantic states marine fisheries you have um voting board members from uh, north carolina all the way up to maine the individual concerns of any member can be very different from the concerns of another voting member. In in other words, if ASMFC is in charge of, eight or 10 or 12 game fish um, and, and the stock management, then the guy in New Jersey might say to the guy in Maine, hey, I'll give you the vote you want on herring as long as you give me the vote I want on striped bass, Mm. because my, my commercial anglers want to be able to kill more bass and you guys, and, and, you know, you guys need the herring count. So let's, let's, I'll vote for you, what you want uh, and you vote for what I want. So what traditionally has happened is this sort of political, um, horse trading and, what happens is in the process, the science sort of gets ignored. And that's, I think, after what has happened both with Menhaden and with striped bass in the Northeast in the past few years, um, I think there's been a lot of pressure on ASMFC to sort sort of stop with the horse trading and start paying more attention to the hard science about you know, why we're seeing so many fewer bass and and really let's listen to the scientists and not let this become a political thing. So the answer to your question is, um, and that's all a result, that kind of pressure the ASMFC is feeling is all a result is of a few very active, um, you know, disparate but uh, groups that are all kind of working toward the same goal, really whipping their membership and up into a frenzy and saying, you have got to write letters. You have to go to the meetings. You have to have your voice heard. And it, and it worked this year. You know, it was very exciting to watch because anglers of a lot of different stripes showed up and, and we had you know fly anglers and bait anglers and deep sea fishermen and all sorts of different people showing up and saying, you, you got to change your ways guys. This, this isn't working.
3: Hmm. That's, that's good to know. I don't, I've always kind of, well, not always, but, I don't think it's a good idea for anglers, different type of anglers to fight with one another because of no. things exactly like this. Like it's very easy for a big group to separate anglers into different groups. If you're already squabbling and fighting between waiting anglers and boat anglers or fly anglers and conventional anglers or bait versus lures or whatever, if you're already kind of squabbling, it sure is easy for someone else to come in there and put a wedge even further between you um, and and keep you from uniting and for the greater good of like something exactly like what you're doing. So it's good to see all different kinds of anglers coming together and realizing. And I guess the only way that somebody would realize what needs to happen is for good science to be being done. So who's who's in charge of of the science? Is there a particular agency or or a group of agencies that are bringing this science to, to, uh, the, the attention of everyone?
2: Yeah, I think what, what we saw was that each state had its own, um, department of marine resource in Maine, it's called the DMR in Massachusetts. I can't. Mass fish and wildlife, wildlife, I believe. Yeah. So what you had was, you know, great. I, I found that these, you know these scientists are just doing some amazing work with you know as usual they're underfunded um and but they do this amazing work and they bring it to the table and then it would sort of get brushed brushed under the um you know under the rug and in favor of you know the economic impact that doing anything to save the fish would have and it's it's sort of funny as we talk about this um, you, you know the the pandemic right now. It's the same sort of argument that we see. Like the science says one thing, um, and the economics say another thing. And how do you you know everybody has a good point to make, but how do you find common ground? Right. Um, and what we finally came to with the striped bass, I think, um, because the real the real pain um, of really cutting back with is on and putting either slot limit or or a no kill. Uh, mandate into place um, is that sort of these these bigger what we refer to up here as head boats out of New Jersey and New York and and to a lesser degree Connecticut. Um, they advertise, you know, go out and catch these great big fish and lots of them, and that's an exciting thing for people because they they are right at ground zero where huge fish in giant numbers go through. But the unfortunate reality there is that those are our breeder fish. And those, when you wipe those fish out, you mentioned canary in the coal mine up here in Maine. We are the canary in the coal mine. We were suddenly seeing no bass whatsoever, complete crash. So in saying, sorry, you can't keep any, or sorry, you can only keep one between these two um, numbers, that is going to hurt those head boats. There's no question about it. Those captains are going to be hurt because their clients can't go out and come back with two or three or four huge bass after a trip. Um, and so, you know, it, it, we feel that we don't, we know that these people are being hurt by these things, but I guess our question has come down to, it's going to hurt a lot more when there are no fish for anybody to catch. Right. Um, so the, the the that's been one of the problems is the scientists in New York might be saying, you know, we see we're still seeing a lot of fish spawning in the Hudson River, um, and that's true. They are seeing a lot of fish spawning in the Hudson River, but that's because that's where the stripers spawn there in the Chesapeake. Um, the scientists in Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts would tell you, you know, what we're seeing a lot fewer fish, and so the problem was taking all that information and putting it in a pot and stirring it up and, and getting one agree, one direction to move forward under and that's been the fight. But I think we're, I think we're at least, we've gotten to the point where we've raised public awareness to the point that we have kind of a, um, you know, we have a general direction we're headed at this point.
3: Yeah. So one interesting thing, like just thinking about the Florida situation and then the way that you just described that seems like there's really two problems that amount to the same problem. There's, there's the problem of overfishing, um, with the head boats and, and other things. And then there's the problem with the bait, which one is more important or which one do you try to attack first? I don't know if there is one that's more important or which one is, is the lower hanging fruit. I don't know. I mean, how do you, how do you, look at that situation and and pick one over the other of where the fight really should be immediately or do you have to go after both at the same time
2: I don't think you do because there is other bait for the fish to eat albeit less less popular there there are other things that certainly bass will eat and bluefish so but I I think it's kind of a I think you know, and I'll defer to you on this too, Luke, but I think it's a, it's a two pronged approach. We've got to keep after both because they, they're so interconnected. Um, one of the big problems for the Northeast too, unlike in Florida, um, you know, if you can't as a guide, if you can't guide for snook, um, because there's been a, you know, for keeper snook at least, um, because there's been a kill, you have lots of other stuff you can go after. You can still go after right. red and we don't really have that, you know, if you, if we have a fly angler on the boat up here and we're fishing the flats and there are no stripers left to fish, to sight fish on the flats for, we're not sight fishing for anything, you know? Um, and that's the tough thing for us. Uh, there is no alternative. And that's, again, I go back to, that's the same for the guys in the head boats. I mean, there are a few more, bluefish down there for them and they can fish for things like tog and um and they have you know some other things around but still it's going to hurt all of us if there are no stripers around it is a it is an unbelievably huge sport fish up here in terms of economic impact
3: sure and how often or how how easy is it to tie i mean that's one of the One of the things that captains was also very, very successful in was, was bringing the, the economic impact of the water situation to the attention of people that for the most part wouldn't necessarily be paying attention to the water situation. Like restaurant owners, um, real estate brokers, people like that, that realize, wow, if, um, if there's not or if there're dead fish that are washing up on the beach the value of this house is going down my income's going down if there are you know dead fish washing up on the beach and there's a red tide and people you know it's affecting people's lungs people don't want to visit here and if people don't visit here then you know that's that's bad for my wallet you know are are you able to to tie the the fishing and the fishery the economic impact to, to just general businesses around your area.
2: Absolutely. We're, um, we're also both members of a group called stripers forever, which a few years ago did an economic impact study, um, a real one, not just sort of anecdotal, but they actually, um, had whoever puts those sort of things together, mm-hmm. they, they hired and paid handsomely to have that done. And they, economic impact just in Maine of recreational striped bass fishing was, it was absolutely remarkable. Um, and I would, I'd like to be able to quote those numbers to you, but I can't, but in a place like Maine where we are 100%, um, our only industry is tourism. That's it. Everything we do depends on the tourist dollars in a very, very short amount of time. Um, and, you know, so that anything that we can do to bring tourists here is, is huge for us. And uh, they did an economic impact study that and and was brought to the, you know, the politicians. And <laughs> unfortunately, it's, it's funny um, that it didn't have as much impact as it should have, at least from people like, at least from the perspective of people like us who care about that stuff. And understand it, um, and I think that's one of the things that the recreational fishery everywhere. Um, I don't care what state you're in, we do. We need to do a better job of getting everyone involved, whether you're a captain or a weekend warrior. Um, but we need to speak with a more singular voice um, and let people know how much how much money goes into these. I mean it every trip I make to Florida, I do the calculations and it's shocking how much money I spend to fish for two or three or four days whenever I'm down there. Um, And I, I just think we do a a poor job, all of us in the recreational uh, world of saying, you don't know how much this is impacting your local economy.
3: I mean, and, and really to the point of, you know, people that don't feel that they're, part of the sport fishing world, like those people just like to go fishing. I'm not one of them. I don't have those people staying at my hotel. I don't generally notice fishermen coming in to eat at my restaurant, but well, because they're not dressed like fishermen, but they are coming into your restaurant. They are um, staying at the hotels. They are doing these, these things that you don't assume that they are and that money is getting pushed through the economy, they're shopping at grocery stores, they're, they're, you know, buying stuff at, at the local market there, there, there's an economic impact that happens that is maybe somewhat invisible, but if it went away, it wouldn't be invisible. And, um, I don't know, that's, that seems to be a, a recipe that, I mean, that gets everyone's attention. I mean, you were talking about before, like how things are, there's an economic thing and there's a political thing there's an economic angle and there's a political angle, but it really kind of all boils back to the political angle. I mean, people want to be elected for the next year. And a lot of that has to do with how the economy is doing. And if the economy is doing badly, then that politician is likely not to get elected the next year. So, you know, pointing that out in a way that the, that the politicians and the leaders, uh, can see the economic impact of the, of the bass is, I don't know. That's been, that's been very effective in Florida. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's way more obvious, like, you know, than in one area than in another, but I don't know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a angle that seems like it's, it's very productive to pursue that.
2: Yeah. And I think we have a, I mean. It's a great point, and we have a unique perspective because the benefits that most anglers, um, you know, the things that we fight for are in other and th- in, in other pursuits or interests. Not always um, don't always include the things we fight for, which are you know we we're fighting for conservation, and also we're bringing economic you know benefit. To an area, which a lot of times it's either or: either you let us play golf and fill in a whole bunch of wetlands, um, you know, or we'll take our money elsewhere. We're saying, you know, we want to save a resource, and also we'll bring great economic benefit to you at the same time. And I, again, I'm in a big. I'm, I, I just think that if sooner or later, if there's some organization that could be, that could be spearheaded um, and and everybody from charter captains all the way down to the person who goes down to the, goes down to the shoreline once a year and casts to try and catch something. If they all had an interest in being part of that, we would have so, we would wield so much power for both the resources and for economic benefit that no one would be smart to say no to us.
3: Right. So is this part of the reason that you guys started this podcast or, or was it for other reasons?
2: uh it's part of it
1: it's also i mean i remember mike sent me an a, a text message and he's like hey i got an idea for you can we meet for coffee so i met him and he said i was thinking about starting a podcast which was hilarious to me because i had the night before <laughs> was just talking to my wife about starting my own podcast cuz we have a short season up here you know it's it's really it's mother's day to the end of september is what our fishing is and then after that, it's kind of for, for the striped bass, it's over for us. So I was just looking for a way to keep myself busy, stay relevant, keep my clients, you know, kind of engaged with what I'm doing, different tips, techniques, you know, and just talk to some people, meet new people. Um, and then as Mike and I started talking, we was like, well, what's the mission? What's the vision for this thing going to be? And we knew that the striped bass is our first love and it was in trouble. So we wanted to do whatever little part we could to make it, you know, use this platform and get the message out there for people who may not know, you know, like I, we may take these people out fishing and they had a great time, but if they don't know that the fishery in trouble, then they're, they're not going to come back Because the next night, they're not going to catch any fish and they just think we're not very good at our jobs when it's really just the fishing itself. Um, so the conservation was good. We obviously love catching fish. Um, and love putting people on catching fish. So that was another reason we wanted to talk fishing. And then what's our slogan? It's what conserving, catching, yeah, chasing, chasing, the catching, and conserving. So we just it was anything fishing, you know, really was what we were talking about. But the conservation was one of the biggest things that we tried to hit on for sure.
3: And so how has the response been when you look at the, the listenership for the different types of podcasts, are you getting um, a good response on the conservation angles?
1: Uh, I think we are cause we're, we're yeah. trying to, we try to hit not just conservation on every episode. We, we try to do a mix. So we've had some really good guests, some really good guys on there that know what they're doing, but are also very knowledgeable about the fishery itself. So we try to mix it in. So you're not just hearing science and doom and gloom. You know, it's usually like a segment or two of the show. And then we turn it around to something fun about chasing false albacore or chasing striped bass, you know, on, with topwater plugs. And we've tried to find these guys that specialize in that, you know, to piggyback what Mike and I are doing up here.
3: That's cool. So how long's the podcast been going?
2: One year. Yeah. Just over a year. Yeah. We w- we had both been, pr- um, pretty committed listeners to this guy down in Florida named Tom Roland. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I, I, I said, you know, Hey Lou, I'm I think we both have a little bit of Tom Roland in us. I, I can do the fish stuff and you can do the pushups. Okay. And, uh, and, and, um, so we've we've become a good team where you know we're uh, each a little bit Tom Roland um i'm I'm really into Southern barbecue and eating it, and I let Lou do the uh, working out stuff
3: okay, so Lou, did you do the 10,000 push up challenge?
2: Uh, I'm working on it okay, <laughs> okay. did not get there I, you know what it did i t- I showed my wife a video of you doing pushups on the um on the deck of your boat, and I said, you know i re- I can't do that on my boat my boat. I need to go find a, a flats boat, babe. So, um, so I did, I was able to tell her that if I bought this Hughes flats boat, that I would do the pushups like you on the gunnel. Um, (laughs) I did get the boat. I haven't done the pushups yet, but it's coming. It's coming.
3: She's going to hold you to it.
2: Uh, yeah. Yep. She is. She is. She doesn't. Yeah. You don't get away with that with her. So (laughs) So um, what? What
3: have? How many? How many podcasts do you put out a week or a month?
2: Uh, we do one full length episode every two weeks. Yep, and then a Friday we call it a short strike every Friday. Yeah, which is
1: just like a ten to twenty minute how to. Here's what's going on. Maybe try
2: this technique, <laughs> and that could be anything from. um uh, product review or advice, or we get, you know, my father is a really, really talented fly fisher, uh, fly tire. So, and has been tying for 50 years. So we just interviewed him about, you know, five secrets to make your fly tying better. You know, that, that, that was just a quick, you know, 10 yeah. minute.
3: What are they? <laughs> I need, I might need those.
2: Um, his number one is, is, uh, your your most important tool is scissors good scissors good scissors okay um and then um he was sort of he's sort of all over the board but i you know he um i can tell you like he said that you should absolutely learn to whip finish by hand um so that you don't have to pick up another tool when you're you know finishing up a fly yeah uh he's an old timer. He, you know, and he hasn't, he hasn't made the change over to um, UV UV cured um, materials. So he's still, still using the um, epoxy and that kind of stuff. But he, you know, he talks a lot He he loves his uh, mono for tying. He, I can't, I personally cannot stand tying with, Um, any kind of thread that's a mono, he loves it. It's almost all he uses. Hmm. Uh, Yeah. I'm I'm kind of with
3: you. I like the flat waxed. I mean, for, for, for me,
2: I just can't get the mono to hold the way I want it to. It just, I don't know. Um, uh, and then he talked a lot about hooks. He really likes, you know, I I don't know if anybody, different hooks for different situations. Yeah. I mean, now as you probably uh, realize there's I, I feel like when I started tying for saltwater, there were only a couple hooks that anybody used, and now there are just hundreds, and they're tying for all different. You know, every species has its own hook that you're supposed to use now. So, um, but um, I can't remember what the other stuff was. He
1: pretty much said, find like four patterns that you are have confident in, and learn how to tie them well. Yeah, that's what I took out of it. Yeah. So things that you like to fish, learn how to tie those four patterns and get really good at it.
3: Pretty good advice. But, I like, um, I would think that there would be a lot of very good fly tires with the winters that you have up there.
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. yeah. 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 Very good. I mean, it, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm ready for the fishing season to start because my Instagram feed is one, fly after the other that (laughs) friends and, and uh, associates have tied and want to show off. So, which is great, but it's also, um, a steady diet of any one thing gets boring after a while. Yeah.
3: Well, in your charter, um, in your charter fishing, um, what percentage is fly fishing?
1: Um, I'm about 40% for myself.
2: Yeah, I'm, I have a funny, kind of a funny trajectory um, when I started guiding uh, twelve or thirteen years ago, um I started almost exclusively fly with a little bit of uh, light tackle artificials. And then we had a big, big loss of stripers. Um, they just they were here in huge numbers, and then they were just gone. Um, they had been overfished horribly. And so catching them, um, we went from you know, charters where my clients would catch anywhere between 10 and 20 bass in a four-hour uh, fly charter uh, to you could fish hard through a whole tide. And if you caught a fish, you considered that a banner day. And I just didn't enjoy that. So I I took a couple of years off and then realized that the guys who were fishing with bait were catching still catching decent numbers of fish. So I learned to bait fish and got back into guiding. Um, and then with the numbers coming back on the stripers sort of coming, at least having predictably decent years, that's in the last year or two, um, I got back into guiding for fly fishing. So I'm building the fly angling end back up again. And my goal would be to 70 to be around 70% fly and 30% everything else.
3: Yeah. How did the guiding start for you? Um,
1: geez, I started, so I'm going into my 10th year now. It started out that, um, my grandfather ended up getting sick and him and I were talking and he was asking me what I kind of wanted to do. And I was explaining to him kind of my life, my life goal. And he said, it sounds like you want to be a guide. And I was like, well, you always talk down about guides, about how they don't get to fish anymore. And he's like, well, it's true. You know, if you're a guide, you're not actually gonna fish. He's like, but you're still gonna be fishing. It's just the fishing rod is the client now. So he kind of pointed me in that direction and thought about it long and hard, ended up taking my test, passed my guide's exam up here. And I would say the rest is history, but every day it it seems like something new happens. Um, But that's how I started is just through my Gramps. Started, I used his boat to begin with. And then I used my father's boat, anything I could, any boat I could use. I was trying to scrape together trips and until I was able to save up enough money for my own boat and bought my own boat, ran it for years. And now I'm running my little skiff, kind of simplifying life. And that's how it's going
2: from here. That's cool. And, and for me, it was, um, my father, I grew up trolling on the lakes and northern maine with my father who um we would troll for togue and um togue is a landlocked salmon um lake trout. lake trout rather sorry yeah um and so we would we would troll for togue and and landlocked salmon and then and that was probably when he was in his you know 30s that i was a little guy and then um his he started fly fishing and once he started fly fishing um it became an all-consuming passion for him, and then he moved to saltwater fly fishing. Then he became a guide and a and a captain in Maine. You have to have a a Maine guides license and a charter captain's license in order to guide on the salt. Um, and there's a mystique to being a Maine guide. It's kind of a it's a very it's a difficult license to get, and there's a lot of respect for Maine guides. So that had always just appealed to me in general um but then when i got when i got hooked on um fly fishing for in the salt and it just was sort of something it's all i wanted to do and um and it just seemed like a fun way to make a few extra bucks and then once i did my first couple Mm -hmm. of guided trips and sent happy clients away um it was like a drug for me i just You know, I, I think you probably realize it too. I know Lou does that you realize when you become a guide that you get to spend almost no time on your own fishing anymore, but that's okay because you, you so thoroughly enjoy guiding and taking people and putting them on fish and that kind of thing that, um, you know, you don't mind giving up your own fishing time. Um, So I, I thoroughly enjoy the interaction with people. And if I could figure out a way to do it year round, um, it would not be a question. I I would absolutely do it.
3: Well, that was going to be my next question was, what does it look like up there? You said you had a short season. So when does the season start? When does it end? And then what do you do for the rest of the year?
1: Uh, yeah. So We'll start catching fish right around Mother's Day up here for striped bass, and that's kind of my, my guiding season usually starts about a week after that, Um and it'll go right through September, depending on any hurricanes or storms that we get in the close amount. <laughs> or snowstorms. Or snowstorms. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so May through September, and then I'm also a full-time firefighter as well. So oh, there you go. I get my schedule. Yeah, I get my schedule every Thanksgiving for the whole year, upcoming year, and I know what two twenty-four 24-hour days I have to be at the firehouse, and after that, it's five days on the water, you know, without taking any vacation time or anything like that. But usually, I'm not in the firehouse from June until August.
3: That's how you do it, two twenty-four 24-hour days and then five days off?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a 24-on, then two days off, another 24-on, and then four days off in a row. Wow, and it just rotates each week.
3: And then, it's how long? You, how long have you been a firefighter?
1: Uh nine years.
3: Okay, Trying cool. I, I got a friend that's together. that's uh, he's he's on twenty and uh, going to be retiring here soon. That's pretty. It's pretty sweet deal Go for him when you uh, it is, yeah. make we're, it that far.
0: Um,
1: yeah, it's a it's it's a pretty. I always tell people I've got two really cool offices. I I get to come out on here on the boat and see the things I get to see. And then when I'm at the, at the firehouse, the city hands me the keys to a million dollar ladder truck and said, Hey, have fun. Hmm. So I can't complain.
3: Yeah. But the better part in my opinion is you got five days off, like that you could run another business that could be, I mean, I always, always thought fire and I'm even talking about uh, firefighting with my, with my kids. I got a 22 year old and he's, he's kind of thinking that, you know, he's, he's investigating everything. He I, I've been really working with him to both my boys actually to, you know, options are good. You need as many options as you can possibly get. So, you know, do everything that you can possibly do to have as many doors that you could possibly open as possible. And then, you know, you can, it's okay to say no to something, you know, it's better to be able to say no to something than only having one choice. So one of the things that he's looked at is, is the potential or possibility of being a firefighter. And we were talking about it just the other night. I thought, what a, what a great um, opportunity that is because you have the opportunity to, to do something else as well. So you pair firefighting up with fishing guide or firefighting up with real estate or firefighting up with something else. And man, it could be, that's a, that's a good life. That's a good lifestyle.
1: It it really is. Um, I would always recommend it to anybody that if they have an inkling that they might want to do it, the job is probably, probably for them. You know, it's one of those things. Like if you think that you're interested, that means you're inter- interested in helping people and doing something worthwhile. And I would suggest it wholeheartedly to look at um, not only that, but it also, you know, and, you know, guiding it's hard, it's hard money. It's, it's long days, but it's also insurance is expensive. Sure. <laughs> you know, and I've got a family and, and everything. And I know that I'm able to guide my five days a week and provide for them. But I also know that by going to the firehouse to for two twenty fours, I'm helping people, but I'm also, I'm providing that health insurance for my wife and my kids. And I'm, I'm putting away for retirement as well. It's stuff that I don't have to worry about if we have, a season like we're going to probably have up here where there's not going to be a lot of people coming, you know? Yeah. I'm not really worried about it, which is nice. I'm, I'm very fortunate for that. And I get up every morning and thank, thank my lucky stars that that's the, the opportunity that's been given to me. Yeah, but if you wants to talk, if your son wants to talk firefighting, I will happily sit down and chat with him and tell him the ins and outs and the goods and the bads about it for sure.
3: Okay. I'll take you up on that. He, you yeah. know, same kind of, same kind of idea with opening as many doors as possible is kind of learning, talking to people, talking to as many people as you possibly can about, you know, this potential thing that you're thinking about doing. And I don't know, it's that that's incredibly valuable, you know, to, especially when you're kind of on the fence of whether you even want to think about it. yeah, I'm sure yeah, it's, it's not it's for not, everyone
1: it's Job to take lightly. That's for sure.
3: No. No, certainly not a job to take lightly, but also, you know, you just, I think it's just always good. A lot of people just jump into things and then find themselves there and, you know, that's fine. And a lot of times that works out just fine. Uh, But other times um, had they had a few conversations or shadowed someone or seen what it was really like might, maybe, maybe they might not have wanted to do it and that's fine too. I mean, to, to find out that you don't like something. I don't know. I once interviewed this, this person for a job and she had a, um, uh, a nursing degree and I was asking her why she was interviewing for, for this job. And she said that she got her nursing degree and then she went to work and that she didn't really like what nurses did. And I thought, man, you didn't, (laughs) you didn't go and spend a summer in a hospital, like as a, candy striper or anything to kind of understand what you're getting into. You went all the way through school without ever knowing what it was, what a day would look like. I just thought that was kind of, I don't know. I just thought maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe you want to talk to a couple of people before you jump into your yeah, career.
1: I, for myself, before I became a full-time firefighter, I actually joined the volunteer department in my town Yeah, just to get an idea of what it was going to be like.
3: And how similar is that to to the actual full-time firefighting?
1: Um, it's so unfortunately, like the call companies that we have in our town, you only respond to fire calls versus when the full time we're doing EMS, we're doing fire, we're doing hazmat, all this other stuff. So I got to get an idea of how the fire service was run but I never in like, I went on a few calls here and there, but the majority of the calls are they're false alarms and which is good. Um, but you see a few, you know, real house fires and see how the system works. But I didn't really fully, fully understand it until I was in there full time and saw how much more goes on and how busy you really can be.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine. Um, but um, <laughs>
2: I'm going to get Mike on the truck someday, I think. I don't care about getting on the truck. I just want to I just want to put on a hat and and uh <laughs> slide, slide down that pole. Yeah, you got to
3: slide down the pole. That's no that's what every kid wants to do when you grow up and yeah. you want to be a fireman. Yeah. That's like what you just think you slide down the pole all day. That's
2: yeah. It. Some yeah. guys do. Um yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's all I care about, really.
3: Yeah. Uh, what about you? What do you do in the winter?
2: Um well, you mentioned polls, Tom. I actually am at a, I, I uh, work at a dance, uh, dance play. No, that's sorry. <laughs> I am a, um, I am a real estate agent um, who does pretty much the same thing as Lou. I work um, at a, a great company that allows me to um, I have sort of a, a team. So when I decide that it's time to move over to, um guiding season at about the same time you know sort of end of may um things ramp up i head over and do my guiding and and if um if i have transactions my you know i work with my team to make sure they're cl- taken care of and then i come back you know at the end of the season and hit the ground running again um so it's you know again one of those things that you know it's it's a joke among mainers that we all have 300 jobs. Cause we do, I mean, we all do a dozen different things and, but that's, that's the way I've worked it out. I've, my goal is down the road when my girls have left the house and <clears throat> gone to college, my goal is to, um, guide in Florida in the winters and guide in Maine in the summers. Nice. Yeah. So, um, and I haven't yet decided fished a, I've fished all the way around Florida and I haven't decided um, where I think I want to land yet, but you know, I, it's just any place that you can fish year round reliably is good with me. And I am never happier than when I'm on the flats in Florida. That's just, and I don't, I don't care whether I'm fishing for reds or for um, tarpon. It doesn't make any difference. I just love being there. I love the feel and it just appeals to me.
3: Right. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty nice, but at the same time, it's pretty nice to get out of the heat and go up and experience, um, you know, the summer in Maine was, I remember that was pretty sweet. Like,
2: that was oh, nice to nice temperature. No place in the world I'd rather be in, in summer than in Maine. And, um, in winter I'd rather be any other place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dad grew up in Orlando back when it was nothing but orange groves and He told me many, you know, he said to me many times when I say I want to guide in Florida in the winters, you know, or even year round, he said, you haven't, you don't understand summer until you've spent a summer in Florida.
3: Well, I mean, I I can tell you this, that it's a whole heck of a lot hotter in Orlando than it is in Key West. Yes. Um, (laughs) I I mean, Orlando is that, that could possibly be the hottest place in Florida that I don't know why it is, but that place is super hot. And uh, as you get closer to the, you know, the ocean moderates, moderates everything a little bit. And Key West, yeah. you know, rarely, rarely gets over, you know, ninety six, ninety seven degrees. I mean, it it's it's hot and it's plenty humid and the sun's very strong. But you know, you're regularly getting. I mean, it's hotter. It's hotter in a lot of places in Louisiana and Tennessee, and sometimes even in New York, it's hotter than it is in Key West. Um, oh, sure, but. I don't know, just, just a little different. I mean, I think the hottest month of the year, is September in Florida. Um,
2: but yeah, my, I've sold houses for two people now um, who've moved to Florida and, you know, never, never spent a summer down there. And both of them I stay in touch with say, yeah, it was hot, but not bad. And they didn't bother me. And, you know, one of those was in, isn't now in Naples and one of them's actually in Orlando yeah um uh, but said you know I saw you know, I don't have to wake up and throw down salt um to melt the ice on my walkway even when it hasn't snowed, you know, I don't have to shovel snow um it's sunny all the time, <laughs> you know the benefits of living there are numerous, even as much as people make fun of Florida there's as as, as an angler there's just no place like it in my opinion. Yeah.
3: Well, there's plenty of things to make fun of. It's always in the news and there's the craziest people ever in, in the state of Florida. I think, um, it's a,
2: yeah, I think you should just embrace and own that
3: though. Yeah. That's, that's, no, I mean, makes you should, horror. it should be, I mean, there's social media accounts all over the place about crazy, you know, crazy things that happen in Florida and yeah, you should pretty, I pretty mean, much just like, own it because it, it is, it, it is, is, I don't it, know if uh, it's actually the craziest place or if the, if it just gets picked up on the, on the news a little more, um, crazy things that happen,
2: you know, the kid, um, the kid that was in every time there's a hurricane, he stands out in the street with an American flag and heavy metal playing. I've seen it. Yes. Yeah. i seen that guy. I think that governor DeSantis should, um, should put legislation in place where that kid is actually on the Florida flag. Uh, (laughs) I think that he represents Florida well, and that it. I think that just should be Florida's logo. Well, uh,
3: you know, they can. You, you could probably, you could probably create a create a social media account and probably get some pretty good traction. <laughs> you're probably you're probably not the only one that feels like that. You know, Key West has uh, their Key West has their own flag. They were they were thinking about seceding and out of the out of the country at one point, becoming the Concord Republic, and they got their own flag and everything. You, you, pick it up in pretty much any store down there, but you know, the, the Conk Republic and they were going to yeah. close it, close it down.
2: Yeah. And Key West is different enough that, that it could identify as its own place. Having been yeah. there quite a few times, it is definitely a different um environment.
3: Yeah, It's different. All right. But I don't think that they necessarily need to be a, be a country of their own. Uh I think they're just, everybody's doing just fine. Just being at the very end of the road. Uh, yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, <laughs> that it would, I don't know if it would do well as its own country, but who knows? Maybe there were a lot of people that were, that were convinced that it would back in those days when they were trying to make it the Concord Republic, but now it's. What
2: about
3: that? I don't know. Back in the, I don't know when that was. It's been a while, 60s maybe, 70s. Okay. Um, that they wanted yeah. to, wanted to make it their own. I, I'd I have to look into that. I, I don't know exactly what year that was or, or, a lot of why. I mean, I think they were not, they were, they were, I remember that they were saying, uh, you know, they were stopping people on the, on the bridges and stuff, I think, and I could be butchering this story, but they were saying, look, if we're going to be treated like we're, we're in a foreign country, then we're just going to be one. And so they started, started moving towards the Conquer public. But I think it almost always, it was a joke. I think, I don't, I mean, there may have been a few people that, took it seriously. But I think for the most part, it was a, it was a joke.
2: Yeah. I mean, it it is definitely a very cool and very different place, but I, I that's the problem with places that are cool and different is that they get popular, then they get overrun and then they lose their um, whatever it is that makes them different. Um, I think that's, I think ultimately, and I could be butchering this story, but ultimately that's why Hemingway decided to go to Cuba um, was because he felt like Key West was becoming overgrown. And of course that was, Damn. you know, way, way, He could see it now <laughs> yeah. if he could <laughs> see it now. Um,
3: yeah, I, you know, I don't know Hemingway, I, that's one of the, we, we were doing this game the other night about who would you like to have dinner with and it started to be, you know, live, living or dead. And I was like, no, that's too hard. Let's just do just living and then we'll do living or dead. And so that was one that my son said he thought he'd like to have dinner with, with Ernest Hemingway and meet him and see what he was really like. Cause he's read a bunch of his books and stuff and, and, uh, he's, you know, born in Key West. So Ernest Hemingway's always been kind of a, a a figure in his life in some way, shape or form. And, uh, I don't know. Ernest Hemingway would probably be a pretty interesting person to, to meet. Who did you pick me? Yeah. You, um, as far as living, I thought that I would like to, I would like to meet Tony Robbins. I thought, I thought he would be somebody that I would like to spend the day with. Um, and then living or dead that got more difficult. And I thought, I thought I better put Jesus in there. Um, because I got a lot of questions. I'd like to <laughs> yeah. I'd like to I'd like to get the straight answer. Um so yeah. I don't know. I mean who would you pick? Oh living?
2: That living's hard. Living's really hard. Yep. Oh man. I know I know Dead. I know Dead who I'd pick in a heartbeat. Who's who? Dead? Left I'd spend the day with Lefty Cray. I, I just think lefty cray was a good human being.
3: Yeah, he was. That was easy
1: for me too. That would be Jose all day long. Oh, all right. That I, when I was a kid, that was like, that was must watch TV and he was so instrumental in how I fish now that hanging out with him for a day would have been pretty cool for me. Uh, but living man, obviously Tom Roland, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't have an answer for living. Actually, I should think about that. Um, I feel like if I picked Jesus, I just spent a day hearing how disappointed he was in (laughs) me. At least all lefty would do is make fun of my cast. Um, but, um, yeah, I've got to think about the living. I should have an answer for that. Right. right?
3: Yeah. All right. Well, the next time we do a podcast, you come up with an answer for, for that and then we'll we'll, oh, we'll start talking yeah, there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um so what is the um for you you what's the impact looking like is everyone terrified right now for the guide in the guide world uh,
3: in the guide world i think that you have um you know you you ask five people you get five different responses and and my feeling is that A lot of times it's a reflection of what you put out there. You know, if you go out there and you're kind of negative and, and you ask, you ask certain people, you're going to get a negative response. If you, you have other people that are looking, they're looking for the silver lining. You have other people that are delusional. You have other people that think it's going to be over next week. You have people that I, I, I just don't know. You have a lot of people that are very scared and a lot of people that are that are legitimately worried that they're not going to survive the and and i don't I don't know which is the right way. I know that being positive and trying to find the silver lining and looking for the opportunity is great. I know that um life has basically changed as we know it to the level of nine eleven um You know, it was one way before 9-11, you know, on September 10th, it was one way on September 12th. It was, it was a different way. And we're never going back to what it was like on September 10th. And until there's a vaccine, I think that that's where we are right now is until that vaccine, we're not going back. We're not going back to the same way that life was a few weeks ago. And, um, and that can be scary. And it is scary for a lot of people, and 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 it's legit. I mean, I think that a lot of people won't make won't make it, and and they won't be able to continue to do what they were doing a few weeks ago. But that doesn't mean that they won't find something better, or it doesn't mean that they won't um, come out of this. And you know, there's no question that it's going to be difficult for everyone. There's no question at all, and I wouldn't I wouldn't try to deny that, and I don't try to. You know, personally, I don't try to to um, kind of fool myself into thinking that no, everything's going to be okay. No, I think I think you know it's going to be I think it's going to be really tough on pretty much everyone. I don't think that there's anyone that is going to be immune to this situation. I think that it's a total trickle down, and even if you have a business that is that is booming. Like, say you were in the toilet paper business, right? Like, that's that would obviously be something that's in incredibly high demand right now for whatever reason. I can't imagine how many rolls of toilet paper you can cram into a closet, but apparently that's what people are trying to do. They're just hoarding toilet paper, but they're buying it. But so many people are buying it that I I don't, I mean, can you? raise the price. I I don't, I don't know. I don't know that even the toilet paper manufacturers at some point it's going to catch up and then they're going to be back to normal. But even then I just, they're not selling it to hotels. They're not selling it to Disney world. They're not selling it to these places, restaurants and other places. So the, despite the fact that everybody seems to be hoarding toilet paper, I bet their sales aren't as good as, I don't know. Maybe they are. I don't know. Disney World uses a lot wow. of toilet paper. I would imagine.
1: Yeah, you know, I would say they're probably. Not. I know a lot of restaurants up where we are right now. Any takeout order is coming with a roll of toilet paper. Really? They're not using. It. Oh yeah, yeah.
3: They're giving <laughs> them a the roll of toilet right. paper with with the takeout order. Yeah, I literally That's we ordered a
1: pizza last night, and it came as there was pizza buffalo tenders and a roll of toilet paper came with it for free. Well, if it wow. was Domino's, I don't only well, millions, it was, but, it was a uh, I was going to say
2: <laughs> Domino's should do that on an everyday <laughs> basis. <Yeah>. But, <laughs> um uh, so you I, know one of the things I, I I was asked the other day um is you know what just someone asking how we're doing and I said, "Well, you know, I have uh two daughters, one's 10 and one's 13, they are both into athletics and they're both in band and they're both in various clubs and so forth. And, you know, I'm involved in a few things. I'm on the school board in my town. And so our lives are, uh, we run constantly. And then we all seem to meet back here at the house at eight o'clock at night. And hopefully you wolf down dinner and then the next day starts over again. Yeah. Both my wife and I can work from home. So we're blessed that way, but we've been taking family walks together and we've been eating dinner together and we've been playing board games together and ping pong. And um, it stinks to not see friends and it stinks to not see my parents, but what an interesting life that we suddenly have where you get to slow down and get to know your family again. Yeah. You know, Again, like I tend to take the positive approach to these things, and I've really had to sort of send some private messages to friends of mine on social media who are in the downer camp and we're all going to die. Things are going to be different from here on out. There's no question. And like you said, it's going to hurt. But I've also seen um, evidence of Americans doing amazingly positive, neighborly, wonderful things in a thousand different ways since this started happening. And I can't, I can't, I wish people weren't getting sick and I wish people weren't dying. Um, having said that, I also am really enjoying watching people come together and take care of each other again and care about their neighbors. Cause I think we, I don't think we made a conscious decision to get into this crazy life that we all live now, but we are there. And you know, I, I know a lot of people who couldn't tell you their next door neighbor's name. And I think now we're starting to, you know, we come out of our house and holler across the street to our neighbor on there, make sure they're doing okay. And do they need anything? And it's incredible. Um, so I hate what's happening, but I also think there's some really positive stuff that may come out of it.
3: Well, there will be, I think. And, and certainly as you're talking about people spending more time with their family, people, you know, their families that have never sat down for, for a meal together that are sitting down every night for a meal. And I just hope that when it's, when this is all kind of blows over, we get back to normal that I just kind of wonder how much of that will be, um, will, will be taken back into normal life. Like will, will people continue to walk together and, spend time together? Or is this a, is this, you know, just a sign of the times that we're living in right now that that's what, that's what people do. But my, my hope would be that they, that they do, that they keep doing it. Me too. You know, yeah. the, the positive yeah. times that we're spending with our family and playing board games and watching funny movies and doing, doing things like that. I mean, that's, uh, that's good, but I don't know. I think I'm lucky enough that I'm, I'm not um kind of, meeting my family again for the first time. Like we, I don't know, we've got a tight family, but my boys are both home from Mm -hmm. Montana state and um, we didn't think that that was going to happen. They were, I I didn't really think that Montana was going to have a shelter in place kind of thing. I didn't think that they would close down Yellowstone national park. I mean, my, in in my experience, you want to get away from people. That's where you go. Um, except in like July. Don't go there in July. But in March, there's no one there. And and literally you could you could go and sit Indian style in the middle of the road and you're not gonna get run over. Like there are no cars coming. There's no one there. And so to close that, I don't I don't know why. It's a little frustrating to see the national parks get closed and stuff like that, because it does seem like that's your opportunity to to get out yeah. and get away from people. And, and I don't think that's where you're gonna get coronavirus, but maybe, maybe. No. And I do understand uh, I, the political pressures to, to close places that could be like that. And I also understand that a lot of this, a lot of that kind of stuff is coming from a, a, a legal uh, fear of what would happen if a busload of people came into Yellowstone and they all left with coronavirus. Like, is there, is there a legal uh, repercussion that could happen there and maybe. And so let's just close it, you know, maybe a national park or maybe a state park or maybe a a local park or maybe like, I think that some of that is going into decisions, certainly for businesses and oh. certainly oh. other things. So I don't know, but I don't, I don't know. I think that, uh, I think we're holding it together pretty well. I have been pretty amazed that there hasn't been civil unrest in, in this anywhere in the country. I haven't seen that one time. So no, no,
2: it has been, I will say, I do want to put a qualifier on there too, Tom, that the togetherness with my family, you know, and, and actually just getting to really spend a lot of time with them has been terrific. Um, but when fishing season starts up, all bets are off and they can all, um, go fly a kite cause I uh, won't be seeing them anymore. Just
3: take them so. with you.
2: <laughs> just, just take them with you. Um, so yeah, I had to get some levity in there. Yeah, huh? I
3: gotcha. I gotcha. Well guys, it's been awesome talking with you today. Um, you, you, you are on the right path on the, uh, on the conservation angle and I hope that you can You can use the podcast to rally the troops and and bring a lot of different types of anglers together and also use use that platform to be able to um have a much larger voice than any of us would have alone as you as you bring together a community so how do people follow you how do they listen to your podcast how do they uh go fishing with you
1: yep uh so you can follow us on instagram where our handle is at Hooked in New England. Uh, same thing for Facebook as well, at Hook New England. Hooked in New England, I'm sorry. Um, we are on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher Play, and TuneIn right now. Um, and if you want to go fishing with us, please, by all means, come to Maine this summer. Uh, you can find me, Captain Lou, at DiamondPassOutfitters.com, or you can go with Mike at FishPortlandMaine.com.
3: Right on, right on. Okay guys, that sounds great. And uh, for everybody that wants to go up there, God, it's a beautiful place. And hopefully uh, hopefully you'll get up there and we'll all get out and go fishing here before too long. All right. Thanks guys.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
3: Okay. I'm going to stop there and let's see if it was just having trouble with you guys' audio. It did take a little bit longer than normal, like on the one that I was on before this one. It it took a little longer to upload than normal, but um, I'll just let it sit there and you'll see it should say preparing your audio on your end. And then it'll show that it starts to upload. And then once it's already uploaded, it'll say, you know, what do you want to do in the call or resume the call? And you can just click in the call, but um, it does need to
2: Right. Yeah. I remember that. Um, what have you spent any time and believe me, if, if your honor, honest answer is you haven't had time is not no offense. I understand you've got a billion things going on, but I'm just wondering if you have any, um, sort of tips for us or any feedback about our podcast. Um, neither Lou nor I is under the illusion that we're going to become millionaires ever. Um, but we're having fun doing it and I think we're doing a a decent job. Well, I think that's Um, the most
3: important thing is having fun doing it. And then, you know, my experience has been that, um, it, it only grows with really regular content. So whether that's once a month or twice a month or whatever, just keep it going. Don't miss that day. Right. It seems like, seems like it's hard to get an audience, but it's really easy to lose it. And all it takes is missing, missing your published day, you know, once or twice. And then they just find something else to listen to. There's just so much out there. So I have, I don't know, I might be making a mistake by putting too much out there. I was thought about that the other day. Like maybe I should go with, instead of doing all these other things, maybe I should go with two full length podcasts a week. And then only one day of other kind of stuff. But I mean, I, I enjoy it too. So I just keep putting it out there and it keeps growing. And I figure that can't be all bad if it, if it, no. but you know, you'll, you'll, uh you'll develop your, your audience and, um and you know, that's as long as it keeps growing, you're doing something right.
2: Yeah. I mean, are you, how many downloads are we getting per, per full length? Uh, right around 500. Pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's I, don't, right. I don't know what, what a, you know, a big pot. I don't know what Joe Rogan gets, for instance. Well,
3: he's, uh, he's an outlier. I mean, he's getting like 30 million. Yeah. He's bigger than any of the news outlets. And, uh, it, but I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to tell. Cause I mean, his, he gets, you know, a, a mini million on YouTube and then he's getting, he, he, that one's huge, but like one that I know of, yeah. like meat eater, probably doing close to a hundred thousand every time they put one out. Um, and that's one that's in our Who's that? meat eater. Um, are you familiar with them? Steve? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. they're for whatever reason, man, they're, they're really doing well. Um, And it's, it's entertaining. It is. They, it's entertaining. They do a very good job. They tell funny stories. It's, it's got humor. It's got news. It's got, it's got a little bit of everything. So they're doing very well in the, in the outdoor space. I think they're probably the biggest. Um, But I know that most people are doing less than, far less than what you're doing. Um, Most podcasts, Don't get 500 per. And then, you know, so you get it up to where you're getting like a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five thousand. And my experience has been that it's really tough to get to a thousand. And then it was just like almost nothing to get to two thousand. And then to get to four thousand was like uh, that just almost happened overnight. Like you double much easier. Like, after a while. But you know, if you're, if you're growing and you're happy with it, then everything's great, man. You're doing great.
2: Yeah. I'd see. I mean, if we, if we, for whatever reason, like this kind of screwed us up a little bit and we did it, we didn't get one out. I didn't get one out for a couple of weeks. Um, and I was getting calls from people saying, dude, what's up? I'm like, can yeah. you get something out? You know? So that's a good feeling. And then, just the random emails that we get from people we've never met, have no connection to. And they send you an email and say, I hang on your, you know, I listen to this and I hang on every word. I'm a new angler and it's really fun and exciting. And so that's just a great feeling.
3: Yeah, no, it is. It is a great feeling. And that's been my experience too, is that the, the podcast of, you know, any of the films that we've done, any of the TV shows, the podcast has gotten more feedback more personal feedback than anything that we've done, anything. And uh, I like that too, very much. So that's kind of why I like to keep doing it. I'm certainly not making any money at it, Um, but I like to keep doing it. And I think that that one day I can make some money off of it, but that's not really the, I don't know that that's the driving passion. I just, it's hard to get, everything you want to get into a 22 minute and 30 second show. I mean, that goes pretty fast and uh, you know, it just is just not a lot of time to, to get different messages in there. And I like to hear from other people too. Like, I don't know, I've been on TV for 17 years. So I pretty much said like everything that I know in some way, shape or form, (laughs) like, I, I don't know. So I like to learn from other people and, and, the guests on television, it's been, it's really hard. Like you got to physically get someone there. If you don't catch fish, then they need to stay longer. But a lot of times the bigger the guest, the less time that they have. So there's really a tremendous amount of pressure and the podcast just didn't like that at all. The podcast is like, you know, if I'm driving somewhere, I can stop two or three times and get a couple in person. I can do them on the phone, and um, you know, it's just—I don't know—I like it. It's really easy, and yeah, television world is not easy like that at all. But one pays and one doesn't, so I guess right. There, there's that.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's, and yours is—you know—it's no secret. I'm not neither of us blowing smoke, uh, but yours is really one we concentrated on just because of the quality of what you do. But also um, you, you don't just, it's not just fish, 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 fish. Right. Um, It's like I, I just can't watch a friend of mine was a, is a filmmaker and he made a bunch of fish porn um, you know, just people catching fish and that, you know, it's fun to watch for five minutes, but you you can only see somebody else catch so many fish before there's got to be some story to it. Right. Um, and that's kind of what I thought about with your podcast was you were delving into these, these areas that, you know, no one else was, it was, you wanted to know about their lives and you wanted to know about, you know, what was the, impetus for this decision or that decision. It's just neat. It's better. It's better to listen to. There's no well, it,
3: about it is for some people, you know, and, and I don't know, I feel like, feel like you just put the content out there that, that you would want to listen to. Like yep. I'm interested in, in why someone chose to become a guide and I'm interested in why, you know, was that an easy decision or was it a hard decision or like, was there, Did you have to give something up? Like, I just remember those were big moments in my life to where it's like, I'm going to jump and I'm going to do this. And I like to hear from other people because most people have the same thing. And most people haven't even thought about it. Like, I don't know why I think about it all the time, but it's like, that was a big moment when I decided this is what I'm going to do. And I'm saying no to everything else. And I don't know, to me, that was just a big moment in my life. And I like to hear from other people if they've got that. And most people that I've interviewed do, and it's like a good story usually. So I like those. I like those, but I mean, I don't fool myself that, you know, that format is for everybody. I mean, other people, want to listen to other things and other people that love fishing don't want to listen to fishing, you know, (laughs) like, I (laughs) I don't know. So I just, I just try to figure out what it is that I'm interested in and then do that. And I figure you, you, you create this audience and if you do it right, I guess you create a big audience. And if you don't, you know, but that doesn't mean that you're not doing it right. If you don't create a big audience, it means that you've, found the people or the people that like what you like have found you. And as long as you're having fun with it, then that's good.
1: Yeah. There hasn't been a conversation I haven't enjoyed doing yet. No. We've met some really cool people driving around, which is always fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd, I'd like, I'd like it if some of the people that we interview would preface that interview with a fishing, a little fishing, you know, <laughs> but that hasn't happened yet either. So well we haven't pushed it either. No, no, we haven't. Yeah, so, well it'll it'll keep uh, growing,
3: you know, and and yeah. Everything will be uh it, you'll you'll keep it growing. That's for sure. Yeah. Um all yeah. right man. Uh well thanks guys. I appreciate it. And uh hook look me up, figure out what we what um uh, setup you want to use um for next week and just let me know how to how to get on there. All right, all sounds right. good. We'll do. All right. See you guys. All right. We're all good That's on that. See you. Thanks guys, I really appreciated that conversation. It was fun and and it's always interesting to hear about different areas and the different issues that people have uh, and how we can all come together as anglers to really help to solve an issue. In this case, it's it's the Menhaden, the bunker. It's the limits on the striped bass in Florida. It's the water quality. Was the mullet situation. We can make a big difference. if We stick together. So stick together. Create your community. And uh, we'll all be better for it. All right, until next week. See you.